Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello folks, this is Ben, this is A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. It's a podcast with photographers, and this week I'm happy to say my photographer guest is Benjamin Rasmussen. So, going to introduce Ben in a minute. Let me first say that this episode of Small Voice is brought to you by PicTime, the advanced online gallery platform for photographers that combines flexible, beautiful client galleries for seamless photo delivery. Customer, anyway. Look, the thing is, PicTime. Go to pick-time.com and have a look for yourself. It's a really super cool platform. Whether you are a commercial photographer or a fine art photographer, there's a great way for you to deliver images to clients and to show your pictures. There's a blogging feature, which I've talked about before. Just have a look. It's really a good thing. And uh, I think their plans are very reasonable um, for what you're getting. So try PickTime completely free for 30 days by signing up for a trial period at pick-time.com and enter the code of small voice to get an exclusive bonus month when upgrading to any PickTime paid plan. Elevate your photos and build a successful business with PickTime, the all-in-one platform to deliver, share and sell your prints. Pick-time.com. So yeah, uh, I think I'm back to London. I uh, was in Australia for a few weeks, as I did mention. So I am home. I'm not too jet lagged, thankfully. Feel a bit spaced out. So I hope this intro isn't total gibberish. But um, it's nice to have you uh, there, and it's nice to be back. Now, what am I up to? A um, couple of things. So one thing that's happening currently and is in progress is that. I am moving the entire archive of this podcast to the member-only feed, or to its own member-only feed to be more specific, uh, except for the 50 most recent episodes. So if you are listening to this free feed, you'll still be able to do that and you'll still be able to catch the most recent 50 episodes. But the 150 plus and that number will, of course, increase as time goes on. Episodes in the archive will be a member-only thing. So it's basically giving my members a little bit extra value and also hopefully encouraging some of you to sign up as um, members yourselves. There is an archive-only plan, so you don't have to become a full member, although I would suggest that for the extra couple of quid to get the bonus uh, episode every fortnight, the member-only episode, and to get uh, access to Photo Book Focus, which is a monthly um, Zoom session that we do, which actually we're doing tonight. Uh, Emily Graham's going to come and chat about her book, The Blindest Man, so looking forward to doing that. But anyway, if you don't want all of that fantastic content, you can access the archive for £3 a month, so that there's an archive-only tier at £3 a month. So that's all in progress at the moment. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to make it all fit together. And so mostly I've done that, but you can still access some of the um, episodes on the website. They're also going to get taken down. So anyway, please, please, please become a member at pod.fan. Pod.fan, you can find... Um, Not only the full member only feed, but the archive feed. And um, yeah, support the ongoing production of this podcast in doing that. 
This episode is also supported by MPB, the largest global platform on which to buy, sell and trade your used photo and video kit. MPB is not a marketplace in itself. They buy directly from sellers and evaluate all items before reselling approved kit with a dynamic pricing engine providing the right price upfront based on make, model, condition and market across a huge selection of camera bodies, lenses and accessories. Every item is inspected carefully by product specialists and comes with a six-month warranty, giving customers peace of mind that buying used doesn't mean sacrificing reliability. The MPB business model is 100% circular. They promote sustainability for diversity and inclusion in everything they do. All packaging is 100% plastic-free and their cloud-based platform uses 100% renewable electricity. And with first-class customer service, their users can receive support through the help center or by speaking with an expert. At MPB, there's equipment for everyone who wants to try something new hone their skills or pursue their passion and it won't cost the earth visit mpb.com the simple safe and circular way to trade upgrade and get paid for kit also don't forget if you want a new website let me know at ben at bensmithphoto.com and we'll talk about sorting you out with one using the squarespace platform my guest this week is benjamin rasmussen ben is a faroese american photographer living in denver colorado After growing up in the Philippines and studying photography at Ateneo de Manila University, he moved to the United States to explore contemporary American identity. His practice is research and photography-based and centres on the intersection of law, history and sociology. Benjamin works for magazines including Time, The New Yorker and The Atlantic. He is also the founder of Pattern, an exhibition and educational space in Denver, Colorado, that works to spark dialogue and acts as a meeting place for the art and documentary worlds. Benjamin's debut photo book, The Good Citizen, which explores how American society came to be what it is today was published last year by Ghost Books. So that is the short and sweet bio for Benjamin Rasmussen. And we talked largely about the aforementioned book, which, you know, yeah, being it's on the theme of uh, how American society came to be what it is today, fairly ambitious uh, uh, topic to take on. So lots to talk about. Ben has been listening to podcasts for a long time. So it's, it's great to sort of, you know, have a listener suddenly become a guest. And that has happened, I think, a few times. Um, yeah, people um, go away and uh, get on with their work and um, produce uh, books and all kinds of stuff. And it's, it's really, it was great to, to invite Ben on um, to talk about it all. Here he is. So, yeah, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about what to ask you about. And um, I haven't got much, to, <laughs> I haven't got much in the way of, uh, of pre-prepared questions other than to obviously, um, you know, ask you about this interesting book that you've released called The Good Citizen, which um, I think it's fair to say was an ambitious project, Ben. <laughs> um, I, I, I got it and um, I did the, I sort of, I was probably, you know, as usual, do, trying to do six things at once. And I, um, I remember sort of my initial moment of, of opening the book, I thought, oh, great. Yeah, it's Ben's book. And I sort of did a sort of quick flick through and then I kind of went, Oh wait, okay, wait. Then I sort of, <laughs> I put it down. I thought this is going to require some attention. <laughs> I, cause this is not the kind of thing I'm just going to like go. Oh no, nice pictures. And it was like immediately apparent to me that um, you know that we were dealing with something uh, with a little more complexity to it. And so um, yeah, I had to sort of reset my kind of expectation there of, of how quickly I was going to actually get, you know, the whole thing. So yeah, it'd be great to, to chat with you about that, but also to find out a little bit more about, you know, your sort of origin story, as it were. Let's start with that, because you, you had an interesting kind of start. You, you, where did you, um, where were you born? 
So I was born in uh, I was born in the states um, on the East Coast. Uh, my mom's from from Maryland, um, and so uh, I was born in Baltimore. And then my um, my dad's from the Faroe Islands, which is this okay. kind of uh, like little protectorate of Denmark in between Iceland and Scotland. Yeah, I think quite a few people have to get the map out, wouldn't they? Uh, <laughs> yeah, to, definitely. But yeah, you, you didn't start out there then, but you did spend some time there. Yeah, so so I I uh, when I was when I was one, my parents moved to the Philippines, um, and so oh, okay, okay, okay. So that that's your your dad's uh, roots, but you didn't actually live there. You 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 moved to the Philippines. So what took the family to there then? Um, so my parents were missionaries. My my dad's a, a linguist um, and was a, a Bible translator, and my mom did like health work. Um, mm. So I lived as as a as a kid in yeah this kind of tiny little remote island in sort of the middle of nowhere. Uh huh. Okay. And then what? How old were you when you moved to the states? Uh, I came back for for college, so I was I was eighteen. Oh wow. Okay. Interesting. So, what was that transition like then, having spent your entire formative period in the Philippines and then having to sort of, you know, adapt to, you know, an American sort of experience as, as an 18-year-old? It was really strange. I mean, I, I'd spent a, a, you know, a, a little bit, you know, we, we, came, we would come back to the Faroes and to the States maybe every five years. Mm. Um, and... Uh, but I, I basically left, I'd gone to high school in Manila, you know, which is a city of about like 16 million and then, um, showed up at this like tiny little university in like Arkansas in a town of about 10,000. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, yeah, it was definitely like a, a harsh introduction to like America. Um, mm -hmm. it was very just, I, and the only times I'd been in the States before was usually on like kind of the East coast. Um, yeah. so it was, it was very, very different. It's a difficult time. I mean, 18, I suppose you kind of, in a weird way, you've got an opportunity to sort of uh, invent yourself in a way. You know, Absolutely. Got, yeah. yeah. Did, did you do that? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, I also did the thing where um, I, I decided kind of very early on that I didn't want the way I grew up to be the most interesting thing about mm. me. So I just kind of like buried that and uh, kind of reinvented myself when I um, when I moved to the States and, um, and had a number of those kind of transitions then where I like, you know, you sort of, for me, that was a lot of sort of, uh, growing up was like shifting to a new place and you sort of got this complete fresh start and you're sort of like, okay, what worked, what didn't work? Yeah. yeah. And you're like, okay, like 3.0, 4.0. Yeah. But then, but the missionary thing that, that sort of, you know, sort of deeply religious, uh, experience that you obviously were kind of immersed in from your parents. How did that have an impact? Like, did you, you know, have you re retained a kind of profound religious faith or was that something you never really sort of inherited as it were from your parents? How does that all unfold? I'm, I'm coming from a, a long line of complete kind of, you know, <laughs> heathens. So I'm always, I'm always fascinated by, you know, someone who's had that kind of a, of an upbringing. So I think an interesting thing is is uh, when you grow up with parents who are essentially church planners, you don't grow up going to church, right? Because there's no church. Right. Um, so, uh, um, 
Yeah, I actually kind of like I, I grew up in a, in a family that was very religious, but not sort of part of a like religious community at all. Mm. Um, and then where I grew up was sort of a mix of like animist and Muslim. Um, and uh, so for me, those, you know, it's not um, especially, uh, you know, having lived in now in the States for about 15 years, um, religion and especially kind of like that aspect of, of Christianity is sort of sort of too deeply connected to, I think, a political worldview that I um, really, really disagree with uh, mm. for it to feel connected to me. Um, mm. But, uh, and I think it's, it's, it's definitely something that kind of like influenced my worldview in a lot of ways. Um, but it's not um, like a super kind of like key or central mm -hmm. part of, of my, my yeah. world. Right, right. So, do you think it's, it's difficult to uh, separate in the U.S. in particular? It's that's interesting that you you seem to be saying that it's really hard to separate out a kind of religious faith with the kind of polit political kind of um, underpinnings that that seems to you know the association I suppose that 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 has in terms of you know the kind of right wing kind of fundamentalist kind of christian uh tradition that it seems to be quite prevalent at the moment at least yeah absolutely i, th I think it's it's um uh the the way that that's kind of expressed uh in the u.s i think is a very protective thing right it's it's, it's very kind of fearful of the other um uh it's um it's focused on kind of you know policing other people's lives um, as opposed to, you know, I think ideas and aspects of kind of openness and inclusion, um, which even within the book, like the, 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 the book starts with like the only, the only quote in the, the only like piece of text in the book that's not, um, sort of directly referenced is, uh, this quote from like Genesis and it's, um, like God speaking to Cain after he kills Abel and mm. says, um, uh, yeah, like your, your brother's blood is, is, is in the ground. And, and for me, that was sort of just like a nod to, to that, um, mm -hmm. sort of like a little bit of a, um, a thing for, cause one of, one of the things that I have retained is I'm very, very interested in having a conversation with that part of sort of American society. Um, yeah. and because I know that language really well, and I know that vocabulary really well, um, I have access to those spaces. And, and to me, that's really, really interesting to like bring work into kind of uh, more conservative spaces and be able to like have a challenging conversation that mm. maybe they wouldn't normally choose to engage with. Um, yeah. Well, that, that seems to be a kind of um, one of the great sort of um, important conversations of, of this current phase is 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 the the, the willingness to um trying to reach out between that divide and and kind of you know just have those conversations or find some common ground everything's become so incredibly divisive and and uh you know polarized politically and uh, ideologically as well you know we've seen that so much um not just in in the u.s but 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 there particularly perhaps you know with trump and everything and and all, all the and the craziness that that um you know that became sort of just a part of everyday life um 
Yeah, that 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 willingness to sort of engage with the opposition, as it were, seems to be even more important now than than it has been for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I did a, I, a with a Mike Freeberg, this other photographer collaborator. Um, some years back, we did a project uh, called "By the Olive Trees" about the Syrian um, kind of refugee population living in Jordan, and. Uh, and with that work, like we were really, really intentional about bringing that to, you know, everything from like religious universities, um, showed it in a, like uh, sort of like festivals in, in more rural spaces, distributing it really broadly in like kind of outside of the coasts. Um, at one point it was shown at a church in Texas and it like was sort of part of something that led to a church splitting up. <laughs> like, right. um when I, I showed it at, at a like religious university in the South and it was um, sort of able to be utilized by like a student group that was protesting like governors who are like the state's governor that was trying to keep Syrians out of the country. And, uh, and so to me, like that, that's a really interesting, um, yeah, like using sort of creating things that can be used uh, in those spaces. Um, mm. It's fascinating because it's, it's, it's pretty, I mean, like, it's a lot, you know, that work was also then sort of in all of the kind of normal like media outlets and, and all of that. So you can kind of like, it's, you can have access to sort of like that, that main population. But to me, I'm, I've, I've, yeah, I've always been really fascinated by like, how do you, um, yeah, how do you get access to, uh, right? Like the people who aren't reading Time or the New York Times or mm. the Atlantic or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, people can find that what, that project on your on your website un, under the um, project section. That um, yeah, um, between um, between the what's it called by by the olive trees? Yeah, by the olive trees. Um, yeah, and so like, and then you kind of explored the Faroese. Is that the right word, Faroese? Mm -hmm. The Faroese um, kind of side of the family because um, you you did a project there. Um, it's sort of it's the, the the location for some something of a of an infamous kind of uh, a, a tradition where they um, slaughter um, whales. Uh, I think it is an annual uh, sort of almost a ritual or or a, some kind of festival. But yeah, tell me a little bit about about that and and how how did that sort of allow you to connect in, as it were with that that side of the of the family? Yeah, I mean the. So the the fair the fairways hunt pilot whales. Um, it goes back to um, you know basically uh, up until kind of like the late eighteen hundreds um, for the better part of about nine hundred years. Like the the pharaohs was uh, between three and five thousand people, just constant. It's all that sort of the land could support, um, and so one of the their sort of like subsistence ways of life was fishing, and then like occasionally like taking whales when they would come in. Um, and so it's kind of this traditional practice that's continued when like whales get, like when pilot whales get close to shore, they're, they're taken. Um, and uh, um, it's become sort of increasingly controversial, but to me it was, it's also, I actually, I, I kind of one of the early bodies of work I actually did was about like the, the pilot whale killing. Um, and, it's sort of so 
controversial that I, I ended up like, I'd like, I'd never show the work anymore. Um, mm. And uh, it like, like Nat Geo ran it and it sort of like was this thing where it came back on a number of the people who were in the pictures. And, you know, so there's, there's a lot of groups that are really involved in like sort of trying to stop it. But one of the things that I've noticed there is kind of over the last decade, there's been this movement of Sea Shepherd and these different groups kind of taking more direct action in the pharaohs. Um, but kind of without, without quite realizing that pharaohies are, I mean, they're essentially like colonized by Denmark. So they're very, mm. they have a very strong response to anybody telling them what to do because that's so much of their history. Um, so kind of when there was less international focus on it, I heard so many more conversations in the Faroe Islands about should we do this? Should we stop doing this? Because of sea pollution, there's a lot of mercury in whale meat. So people are just sort of like, I think we should not, not eat this, blah, blah, blah. But then when outside forces come in and sort of try and tell them what to do, everyone like yeah. sort of like, you know, literally gather the boat. down. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so yeah, I, th I think it's a very like, it's it's very controversial, but it's also like the more sort of international focus and like people trying to stop it. It almost has like the inverse effect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, I started, I, I made, I made kind of like very early work there in my early twenties trying to sort of explore that um, and, and kind of explore like the Pharaohs. It's, it's a really weird place to make work because it's so pretty. Like it's, it's almost like a little bit too, too, uh too pretty <laughs> yeah 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 so i think of the the right word too, too picturesque i think is yeah. the word i was looking for yeah totally um so you know most almost all of the the work that ends up coming out from the pharaohs is sort of this like uh you know it just ends up feeling like sort of a travel brochure or something um mm. And so now I'm actually like trying to sort of re-engage with it and start to like there's like a new body of work i'm looking to make there um but, uh, you know, trying to sort of figure out, like, how do you, how do you break outside of those? Like, it, it just, it's, it's a little bit like I live in the American West and it's a little bit of a similar thing where you can, you just kind of fall into this like visual romanticism that becomes like really, really repetitive. And yeah, yeah, exactly. And you want to sort of, in a way, your instinct is to push as far against that as possible. You know, you're trying to, yeah, you're trying to go this far in the other direction as you can. Yeah. Um, but I guess so. There's no, there's no remnants of your family history still, still there. Oh, on, massive! On the, yeah, yeah. My, my oh, dad's actually, yeah. My dad's the first person in his family in probably like three or four generations to have ever left. Oh um, wow! Okay. So, so I, I was actually, I just got back last week from from the Faroe Islands, and uh, you know, you bas I basically have to do like two week trips there just to see. <laughs> like all of my family because it's so big yeah um, amazing oh very cool yeah that's great can you do you have to like do you can you fly straight there or you have to get a ship from wherever it is then De uh, from denmark or from norway or somewhere yeah you can you can fly there from um yeah from from denmark from iceland uh yeah. from from the uk yeah, um yeah. it's uh it's actually it's, i mean these days it's an incredibly wealthy country due to like um fishing and salmon farming. Mm. Um, so, so they're actually starting a direct flight like to New York. Um, oh, wow. And this cool. is just sort of how Faroese function is like Faroese don't talk about the direct flight to New York as being something that would take people from New York to the Faroe Islands. 
they talk about it as something that would take them directly to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, there's not sort of as much of a focus on like tourism or like, you know, bringing other people in. It, it's, it's definitely more of like a um, sort of self-sustaining yeah. space. Yeah. And then, so the American side of the family, I heard you make reference to a dark history, I think was the, the way that you put it. And I suppose this is very kind of uh, relevant to the book, and the project, what, what, are you happy to talk about this dark history? What what is what is that a reference to? Yeah, I mean, my um, so where where my dad's side of the family is really, really, really big, um, very closely connected. Uh, my my mom's side was was sort of the opposite. Um, uh, she came from a, a very sort of complex, abusive family. Um, Mm. with a, a father who basically cut off all contact with all relatives. Um, so that's, you know, it's, that's a very short road um, on that side of the family. Um, and, uh, and when, when they were in their twenties, they were actually like trying to sort of like rebuild that relationship. And so they named me after like that grandfather. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So that, that's, uh, my connection to sort of like my like American heritage has always sort of been, you know, tainted for a a better word, sort of by, I think like this, this past and this kind of like figure who was a, you know, sort of Mm. abusive, compulsive liar, racist, like, (laughs) yeah, the full, just not, not a good deal. The full bit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I I guess, you know, when, when push comes to shove, I imagine so many of us, you probably the majority of people if they kind of dig around enough have got someone like that you know in their in their family history i mean it's sort of almost like a a sort of statistical um like a certainty you know when when you think about it um especially you know the further the further back you go and and obviously you know i was thinking in, in looking at the book and and you know thinking about um the history of obviously slavery being you know such a huge kind of part of you know, American history, um, you know, any family that goes back to the mid 19th century is going to have, you know, some connection um, to, to all that, you know, and uh, especially in the South and everything. Um, but maybe we can, we can talk more about it. How, how did this, this, like I say, very kind of ambitious um, project begin for you with, with the good citizen? How, what was the sort of um, catalyst? So I was, I'd, I'd been working, um, yeah, on, on, on work related to, to Syrian refugees, I was, I was doing work back in the Philippines um, uh, with kind of internally displaced people related to climate change. Um, and, and, and I was showing this work to uh, an editor at National Geographic, and she kind of posed this question, which was like, when does somebody go from being like a refugee or a migrant to being a citizen? Um, and that, I thought was a really interesting question and kind of stuck with me. And I realized, you know, I didn't grow up, I, I didn't grow up with American history. I didn't grow up like learning sort of any of any of these things. And so um, what was that sort of origin within within America? Um, and at that point, I had uh, Abby, my, my partner was in um, in law school. And so, you know, she's studying like constitutional law and these are so we just have these sort of like books around. And so I decided to kind of try and look at that from like a a legal perspective, like what, what was the sort of specific history of, of, of some of these things. Um, 
And then there's this case that actually the, the book starts with um, where an enslaved man named Dred Scott, who was in Missouri, was taken to a free state and then brought back and then he sued for his freedom. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court and basically the Supreme Court said that, um, you know, as a, as a black man, he could never become a citizen. So he had no standing to sue. Um, mm. But there was this like piece in there where they say, um, like, basically, people of African descent can never become citizens. And if they could, they would have to acknowledge um, the like hypocrisy on the like on the side of the founding fathers. So this is within like American history. This is very infamous, sort of like the mo like one of the most racist sort of decisions. But this one little nugget where you're like, he was meaning one thing. But if you look at it from, you know, 150 years ahead of time, it's this actually sort of very uh, kind of damning thing about the sort of origin myths of, of America. Um, and as I was as I was kind of researching that in in Ferguson, Missouri, Michael Brown was shot and killed by a police officer. All these people are coming out into the street to sort of protest these like years of, of kind of bad policing in this community. And, uh, and so I was like, you know, I wanted to go photograph this. Um, and so as we're like driving down, I then realized that, you know, Mike Brown was killed right off of West Florissant Avenue. Everyone's pouring out onto West Florissant Avenue. And then five miles south on West Florissant Avenue, is Calvary Cemetery, which is where Dred Scott is buried. And so you have this sort of connection of, of the sort of short, because the shortness of American history, it's, it's really like in terms of like the European like settler history, it's very, very confined. Um, and, uh, and so that sort of started this thing of like, oh, like what, what are these threads? What are these sort of connecting tissues between... Um, between the sort of like past and the present. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for me, that was also, you know, like at that point I had decided that I was going to like live in, live in the States um, and was kind of choosing to sort of make it my, my home sort of like for the long term. And so I was trying to sort of come to terms with like, what, what does it mean for like, for me to choose to be American as um, you know, and specifically, like when I when I moved here for university, like I was a, a, like a straight white dude with a neutral accent, like no one ever questioned my kind of ability to belong. Hmm. But within a lot of my friends who are born and raised here, but are from whose like, you know, backgrounds are from different ethnic communities, um, they're challenged all the time. And they're sort of like, they're, you know, thought to be Chinese or thought to be Mexican or thought and like, and and their and their Americanness is sort of always questioned. Mm, yeah, and this is the sort of uh, you know, yeah. Why don't you go back to where you came from? Kind of a uh, philosophy, um, which you know, of course, is is prevalent, you know, here in in the UK as well to an extent. Um, and yeah, talking talking to people who are you know kind of born and raised, uh, and probably second generation as well. Um, so yeah, sorry, I I jumped in. Um, Please continue. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was, you know, as, as I then kind of what I realized then was there's this, you know, I think that I'd always assumed that sort of my experiences, other people's experiences, the sort of structure of like whiteness and power in the U.S. was a de facto like structure of society. It's just the way that society ended up and happened. Um, 
But what I realized doing kind of like more research and, and kind of digging into it is that it's like, it's what's called a de jure structure. Like it's intentionally built kind of by law and statute over like decades upon decades upon decades. Mm. Um, and yeah, these not, are sort of technical legal terms that, w- yeah. that you're, you're talking about, but, but basically they have a, yeah, they have a sort of more kind of wide ranging uh, application in a way. Um, but yeah, I had to, I had to look that up. Yeah, so it's, it's not, it's not, um, it's society functions in a way that sort of uh, has been very intentionally built up. And so that, that became the sort of thing of like, okay, well, how do you, how do you kind of narratively unwind some of that? And how do you um, sort of uh, look at some of the starting places and then figure out how to kind of create a narrative that follows that into the present and then also kind of like projects mm. um, an idea of, of the future from that. Yeah. And so you've, you ended up breaking the book into these five chapters and that structure, was that something that, that came, you know, very late on for the book or was that structure something that you came to, you know, as a, as a sort of way of kind of organizing your thoughts, you know, as the project went along? So for about like five or six years, the project was really, really structured in this very kind of narrow way along um, specific court cases, kind of using those as a starting point and building out from there. Um, and then uh, I knew that I wanted to work with sort of a, like a book editor and designer who had a really good sense of kind of image and text. Um, and so I ended up reaching out. So I had a dummy and everything and, and ended up reaching out to, to Stu Smith um, at Gost, um, not, not actually to publish it, just to like, like edit and design it. Um, and, uh, and then he was in New York for something and I met up with him and basically sat down with him with the dummy and he was like, goes through it and is like, uh, your structure is completely wrong and your design is completely wrong. (laughs) 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 <laughs> not to be not to be dogmatic and opinionated about it but i suppose that's what oh, he's there for totally and uh and then he had a really like he's he's basically like you're 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 you know creating a structure that's so rigid um that you're putting yourself in a place of of um like you're trying to make this into a a very specific, a very narrow box of like this is what happened um mm. and uh and, and so, but then, but then he was, you know, was then like, I think that there's some, I think that we can like kind of work with this and expand it and reframe it. And I, th- I think it would be like an interesting Goss project. And so then it was, a you know, um, the, this guy, Frank, Frank H. Wu, who's, who's an academic and is a, a legal scholar, um, and, uh, and university president had actually written me cause I'd, I'd done, in in a section of the book, um, there's these things called the prerequisite cases, which basically uh, the U.S. naturalization laws up until the 1950s said that you had to be white to be naturalized as a U.S. citizen. And so um, kind of from the 1890s up through like the late 40s, people from different immigrant communities were would apply to become citizens, would be denied because they weren't white. And so they had to sue to be considered white. So the, mm. the courts kind of during this period um, were having to decide what whiteness was as a concept. Um, and so I ended up um, 
kind of trying to look at that by photographing these like beauty pageants in immigrant communities um, that had sort of uh, been part of these court cases uh, and then collaborated with, with like with Vogue on that. And so Frank saw this, saw these pictures and wrote me and was like, oh, that's really interesting that you're looking at like the prerequisite cases. I write about sort of these issues and I write about photography. Here's oh, some wow. of my essays. Right. So he was just kind of exactly right for it. Um, yeah. And so without and so, you even knowing. And so originally we were going to just like, I, um, we weren't even sure kind of like what he would do. And he ended up, you know, I, we had kind of an edit for the book. And then he ended up writing this like series of, of five essays. And we actually shifted the structure then to sort of like, um, you know, spend a week with, with sort of Stu at his house with like these five essays laid out on the floor and kind okay. of blew up the entire edit and kind of rethought it in response to um, uh, interesting. what Frank yeah. had written. So, yeah, so it all kind of came out of his writing, really, in terms of that structure. Because let me just say what the, the, the chaps are. So there's violence, exclusion, archetype, beauty and whiteness, which is what you refer to in terms of the beauty pageants and surveillance. Those are the five chapters. And I suppose, you know, for, for you, you know, partly the challenge is you've got a number of tools in, in the, in the toolbox in terms of what to actually photograph. I mean, with the, the beauty pageants, you know, that sort of just, you know, perhaps was an obvious thing, but there are, when you're dealing with historical issues, you know, sometimes you've got to rely on other people's material. You did draw on sort of, you know, of, 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 of images that obviously you didn't take yourself. How did you, what was the most challenging thing in terms of, you know, which chapter was it hard to, to illustrate? Um, I think, I mean, we, we wanted to sort of have a, a different um, kind of narrative structure to each. So there's one called um, uh, exclusion, which is, it, and then the other thing was, was the idea was not to have the images mirror Frank's essays, but basically for them to essentially be a Venn diagram where there was a point of overlap, um, but then they would kind of take their own directions. Mm. Um, and with that one, uh, we kind of like like Frank's essay deals specifically with like um, like Asian American exclusion, specifically like like Japanese internment during World War II, and then like Chinese exclusion. Um, and so we decided to to as a as a structure start with Japanese internment, and then look at the way that other immigrant communities had been impacted by sort of U.S. foreign policy. Um, and within that, like, I was really interested in, like, how do you give space for um, not just kind of, like, historic images, but kind of what do those images mean? Um, mm. And so um, I became really interested in the fact that there had been uh, Japanese-American baseball leagues in California before World War II um, and this sort of, like, quintessential, like, American pastime uh, right, because there's a very, there's very, very healthy, large, flourishing, wealthy Japanese community on the West Coast that was like a huge part of like farming and all of these things, and and a lot of that actually influenced um, Japanese internment, where like a lot of the pressures to sort of move the Japanese out of the West Coast was actually um, uh, to sort of a little bit of a land grab as well, um, and so I was interested in like how do you show in a very quick way, how American this community of what are called Nisei, which is like Japanese Americans who are born in the U.S. like second generation. 
Um, and so I was able to find uh, like baseball cards from um, like some of those players during like that, that period in the thirties before everyone was sort of sent to live in these internment camps. And then to balance that also found these like postcards of uh, Japanese soldiers from this thing called the 442nd, which was um, it's like the most awarded battalion in American history. And it was Japanese American Nisei soldiers who were sent to, to Europe to fight. And so um, these post like postcard image of uh, an American or American Nisei soldier playing baseball mm. in Germany that then they'd sent back home. Yeah. This kind of thing. Yeah. And so you didn't have any trouble. I mean, was it, do you enjoy I that mean, kind of digging oh, around like, and you like a year on eBay? <laughs> like, right. Right. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And then of course you've put your own portraits in there. Um, it's got, you've, you've gone for what I would, I suppose, describe as a kind of quite a forensic kind of a, an aesthetic, I would say. Um, I don't know if that's a fair way to describe it, but I'm not sure what, what other word to use. But um, in the way that you've approached your portrait making, it's not, it's not your usual kind of aesthetic, I would, I would say. Did, is that something you kind of considered quite carefully? And was that a, a conscious decision in a way? Yeah, um, I think the the goal was how do you how do you create a completely level playing field visually, um, so that you can talk about um, sort of different people, different communities, different parts of history, um, and keep everything in conversation with one another. Right. Um, and uh, and then also have it you know. Um, so, so to not create a visual hierarchy, even within the book, like the, from the sort of first conversations with Stu, for me, it was really important that every image just be like most, most of this is, is four by five. Um, and so I wanted it, like, I wanted every image to be four by five to essentially just be like a contact print. Um, yeah, there's a lot of white space, um, around yeah. the images in, in the book. Again, not, you know, it's a very particular approach. Um, and, and, you know, it's not, not something that, certainly not a sort of ghost thing generally speaking so again very much you know a specific decision as it were sorry carry on um so yeah so i, I that the idea was was to have um you know uh i i i quickly thought and kind of realized that it would be really problematic to create the sort of visual hierarchy and structure that we normally do within the way that a book functions right where you have some things that are kind of uh, you have this kind of ebb and flow and movement and pushing and pulling. Um, but that when you're dealing with um, especially a topic like sort of citizenship and whiteness, that if you start creating a visual hierarchy within that, you're just recreating um, some of the things that sort of society has done. Mm -hmm. um, and so to, so to create really strict rules for sort of how, um, how things and how people were, were, portrayed um and then to be able to sort of step out of that for specific reasons yeah 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 and each of these chapters sort of it starts with a a question um I, it feels like there, there might be a certain sort of uh they 
certain irony to them. They're not. I'm not sure how one, how sort of seriously one is meant to to take them. Like the first one in in the violence chapter is through photography we envision problems and progress. Can photographs redeem racial tragedies? They're, they're quite <laughs> they're quite big questions. They're not sort of uh, insignificant. Are, the, are these ones that um, Frank came up with as part of his text, or how did? Those yeah. Come? So Frank. So Frank originally. When he wrote these essays, he kind of ended each one with a question. Mm. Um, and as we were sort of laying it out, we um, basically took that question and shifted it over into to the beginning. Um, but Frank is Frank is someone who's, you know, he's uh, has been sort of like an educator for his entire career and um, uh, is is kind of one of the leading um kind of scholars, especially on like Asian American identity and kind of writers within the sort of like, uh, like critical race theory, like mm. space. Um, and, and so, you know, his, his essays are almost very, um, to me, they kind of remind me of like an Adam Curtis film or something where they're, mm. they kind of move through a lot of things and kind of create, uh, connections and movements, um, but without kind of just being like overly academic or. Right. Uh, yeah. I think that can be a little bit alienating um, mm -hmm. for, for a lot of people. I think just one of the, of the questions, just to give people a flavor of it. There's one that's um, part of the archetype um, chapter. Our observation of others would be easy if character were revealed on the surface, the good is lovely and the evil is ugly. How much can photographs show of what matters? Um, what, what, tell me a little bit about the archetype, um, chapter. What was that one's focus? So archetype starts, um, in, in, in Frank's sort of essays, he's, he's writing kind of more broadly about, um, uh, about like indigenous Americans and, and kind of that, that history, but specifically relating it, um, in sections to, to, to Edward Curtis, to some of these kind of photographers who, 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 um, kind of try to do these almost like typological, uh, photographs of, of, of these tribes, but also very much like kind of fulfilling this sort of white Western fantasy of, of what that was. Um, and, and so photographically it actually started with, um, this there's a massacre that happened in in the 1850s called the Sand Creek Massacre, where um, this group of of peaceful Rapahoe Cheyenne um, were basically wiped out by this like volunteer militia. Um, and of the survivors, there was this one kid named Tom Whiteshirt that um, he'd hidden out in a like cook stove in a wagon, and when he was found, instead of killing him, they decided to take him, probably like four at the time, decided to take him and put him into a circus that someone had. Um, and so he performed like surrounded by the scalps of his like relatives taken at Sand Creek, was sort of eventually returned because of a, a peace agreement to his his um, tribe and then resettled in, in Oklahoma. And I, I, I was actually working with a writer um, whose great, great grandfather was one of the killers. And so, um, we decided that what we could do as an approach was how do we, 
like, let's look at all of the people who are alive because of this one person who wasn't killed. And then how do we then extrapolate that into what this community would have looked like if it wasn't for this massacre and then extrapolate that into like all of the other things like that that happened. And so we, we worked to track down as many of, of Tom Whiteshirt's living descendants as we could. Um, and, uh, and using that as, as sort of a, a way to kind of build out this um, sort of proposed, you know, sort of mm. almost, almost like asking that question then of like, of again, like how would the, how would America look and function if this is, this is the type of community that exists because of one person. Mm -hmm. um, and if there was all the, and then moving from there to kind of a number of, of, of different kind of topics that are then sort of connected either through like, sometimes the connections are visual. Sometimes the movement is based on text. Um, but then ending with um, these scenes from this Mars Desert Research Center, which is like a Mars analog site where researchers are, are kind of preparing for Mars exploration. And um, this, this line from, from Trump during one of his uh, um, States of the Union, where he basically calls for the like manifest destiny of the stars, where manifest destiny was that concept that sort of gave kind of white settlers the like especially religious justification to move through move west through America and kind of burn everything in their path um, because it was like ordained by God that that white Europeans would settle the continent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that 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 Mars place is pretty pretty extraordinary and fascinating uh, landscape. Really, d d well, I haven't been to Mars obviously, but it certainly looks like the the vision of how, how one thinks the Mars must be, which presumably is the entire point of it. Um, but yeah, that that that's a lovely kind of um, aspect to things, which is sort of somewhat unexpected. Um, but there must have been times. Did you? I mean, this is really what pretty much ten years of your of your practice. Um, or certainly getting on for that. Were yeah. there times when it just <laughs> kind of you lost sight of it all, or that it became like, what the hell have I have I have I bitten off more than I can chew here? Or, or was the sort of you know the, the fact that it was kind of broken down into these distinct um, aspects? Did that make it easier to sort of stay on top of things? The fact that it was broken down definitely helped. Um, but also I think just sort of being like a jobbing photographer and like, um, you know, so there's some, there's some portions of it where it's, you know, me trying to figure out like, how can I look at this thing? And then an assignment comes across and, you know, maybe it's just like one specific thing, but it's, it kind of fills in this hole. Um, and then that kind of leads to like other thoughts and ideas and kind of pushes things in, in, in another direction. Um, so that for me was a really, really, you know, was, was kind of incredibly helpful where, um, uh, you know, even with, within the structure of the book, we kind of move from these beauty queens. Um, and to me, it was really important to like, how do you, like, how do you then sort of, sort of end that by looking at the fact that, right, like, so it's the court deciding these, like, all of these people's fate. And then how do you sort of acknowledge like how uh sort of like weak and human like the the courts are and the judges who are sort of making these decisions um and then uh 
like I got a call from the New Yorker to photograph um, this woman, Debbie Ramirez, who was sort of coming out publicly accusing Brett Kavanaugh, who was a Supreme Court nominee of sexual assault. Um, and, you know, so then all of a sudden it's like, okay, I've, I've been, I've had these, these portraits of kind of beauty queens and I've been looking for a way to kind of narratively move out of this. Um, and, uh, like, you know, then Debbie and Debbie's story is this thing that sort of like puts a very clear end point on this isn't sort of a, a group of omniscient sort of like, hmm. uh, people. It, it, it's, it's traditionally been just like a group of kind of like powerful, um, mostly white men who have been sort of choosing all of these, like making this whole course and making these decisions. Um, and, uh, and her story sort of stood in for, um, you know, the, the kind of moral ambiguity of that. Right. Right. And, and so in that, when that kind of thing happens, I get, I guess it's almost like a little gift from the muse that, you know, you get a commission, um, that you couldn't possibly have really anticipated, but which has a relevance to this wider project that you're working on, which I guess is just, yeah, maybe it's, uh, well, some people might, might, might see that as some kind of divine intervention, but, um, it's certainly a nice little, um, bonus when that sort of stuff happens. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's one portion where, you know, I, uh, obviously within like sort of contemporary American politics, I, I like, I knew that Trump needed to be a part of this. Um, and you know, so it was like, do you, okay. Like I'd photograph some Trump rallies. I'd photograph during the election. I'd photograph kind of different things. Um, but I, I, you know, kind of wanted something that didn't feel so like on the nose and so sort of direct. Um, and then ended up getting a, a chance through, um, through, through time magazine to, to like spend an evening with Trump, like in the white house residence. And so that became this whole thing where it was like, okay, now we have, and I remember literally like it was, it was like the, like the image we ended up using from the book was originally going to be like a cover. And I remember sort of being like, shit, if this is a cover, like it might be too like overplayed to be able to right. use. Like, so it was always that sort of like, you know, you kind of have that like, okay, what am I like? Yeah, what do you, what do you push out? What do you sort of like keep back? Yeah, like yeah, how yeah. do you how do you kind of balance that out? Yeah, and that picture was one of the back back of his head, basically, or the back, the back of him. It was, um, yeah, quite oblique in that sense. You know that you went for something less obvious. Although I suppose, yeah, part of it is that he's very easily identifiable from that angle for some <laughs> for whatever reason. You know, the sort of yeah, the back of his ridiculous head. Um, so like now the thing about a book like this, I suppose, or a project like this is that it's all about, or it seems to me, I mean, you, I'm, I'm sure you, you don't have to agree, but it's all about creating a conversation or, or asking questions. Certainly it seems like you, you might subscribe to the philosophy that photography is more about, um, asking questions and answering them. I would certainly, um, I would certainly sort of conclude conclude that from 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 your work, but you know, then the question is like, does anything come back to you in the ether, as it were, in terms of people's response? Because you know, it sometimes feels like we're operating in a in in a vacuum. I'm, I'm talking about all of us. I suppose anyone who's trying to put something into the world, and I'm wondering if you also feel 
that it's sometimes like that and that you know you sort of put this out and there's all sorts of fascinating questions um that arise from it but you know whether you actually hear um any response is another matter how how's that kind of has has that is that something that's happened in terms of the book yeah i mean i i think that's you know for me it was part of what was really it's part of what is really nice about having uh Frank as a collaborator is, mm. um, uh, you know, he's, he has his own community, right? So it, it allows it to, to very much kind of move out of just the, the kind of photographic space. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and, and he like works in academia and, and sort of like has, has space there. Um, and, so I, I think, you know, there's, we've actually been like pretty intentional about trying to figure out how to kind of how to bring it into spaces and have that conversation um, mm -hmm. as opposed to just kind of sending it off into the void. Um, yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, trying to be really intentional about like, um, yeah, how do you use it as a, a, a tool to sort of spur conversation and, and question asking in some of those spaces um, and, uh, but kind of doing the work to sort of like get it there as opposed to, um, yeah, as opposed to kind of just mm. photographers finding it kind of, you know, you know, um, yeah. and, uh, and, th and that's, you know, that's still kind of, um, tricky to sort of figure out, um, like totally. in, in, in terms really of is. setting up even shows and stuff like that for it you know, again, kind of leaning on, I'm trying to take it back to some of these same sort of conservative spaces, um, figuring out sort of where, uh, even in exhibiting it, like how do you create an experience of the work that, um, you know, moves it out of that just sort of like pretty pictures on a wall. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I had a show a couple months ago and, and, um, this gallery called, called Pictura that does a lot of like really good community outreach. And so, you know, as part of the show at one point, they have like a, an art teacher coming in with like, uh, like elementary age kids. And like, as part of their activity, they're like learning how to make like protest signs. Right. And stuff like that. Like, um, so, so yeah, I, th I think just trying to, for me, it's, it's like trying to, um, yeah, do, do a lot of different, um, kind of ways mm -hmm. of, of, pushing it out i suppose instagram can be a useful tool i, I don't know if it's maybe a, a you know it's all too brief and superficial to some extent but but i suppose you know you can post something and then you know hope that people will engage with that you know bef you know between uh, you know their sort of um scrolling and their sort of uh, attention deficit <laughs> you know b jumping around from one thing to another M maybe it's not the right um you know, medium for something that's, that's nuanced and, you know, and complicated, but I guess, yeah, it's, I guess you've got to use whatever tools we have available to us. Um, yeah. And part of, you know, part of what's going on in the U S right now is that there's a, a, you know, because of the kind of political situation you have, um, a lot of, you know, you basically have like the highest number of banned books kind of ever currently in the U S and, uh, so any, a lot of like books that deal with these topics are getting sort of actively removed from like public and school libraries. Um, and so that was part of, you know, 
part of as we were doing a print run was like doing X, like I wanted to do extra to sort of have on hand that we could then, um, you know, kind of slowly work to get placed into some of these like libraries and institutions and, and even using kind of some of those ways to just like make it um, more accessible to, mm. to kind of a broader audience. Mm. I guess if, you know, if you find yourself in a time in, in, you know, a great democracy, and I'll, I'll use that term in inverted commas, but, you know, uh, such as America, where there's a lot of book banning going on, that's, that does not bode well, does it? That's, def <laughs> def def that's definitely a, a bad sign, generally. Um, it's a what, relational red flag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what's, what's going on there? What's driving that then? Is that, is that um, sort of very conservative sort of um, mm -hmm. Republican states that are, you know, maybe... Uh, dominated by, you know, even the sort of Christian, you know, fundamentalist uh, contingency. Well, I'm obviously sitting yeah. here in a, a different place, but um, that's a story that isn't isn't really getting through much, I don't think. And, you know, there's there's just a fear that um, kind of the narrative is that any if, if you if we take sort of a critical look at some of these aspects of American history, then what it does is it makes people feel bad makes people feel guilty. Um, mm. and, uh, and so, you know, anything that sort of does this is getting, um, you know, it's getting pulled off of like high school reading lists. It's getting like pulled out of libraries. It's, 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 um, uh, like I saw a piece recently about, um, like, Tanahasi Coates literally showing up at like a, a town hall meeting where they were like where they were um, like passing a vote to ban his his uh, his book um, and uh, yeah so I, I, th I think you know um, to me it's it's yeah it's it's like how do you um, sort of again be in those spaces and sort of be be a part of that conversation um, and uh, yeah, sort of engage with with kind of people in in that way. Yeah. What's the general sense about whether Trump has a chance of becoming the uh, <laughs> the president again? My kid asked me this the other day. He came in. He said, "Like, wouldn't it be hilarious?" Basically, the way he framed it was, "Wouldn't it be hilarious if Trump actually got in again?" And I said, "No, it would not be at all hilarious. It's <laughs> not that it would be hilarious for about five seconds, and then it would be very scary." Um, but I, I don't know why I'm asking you, Ben, as if you're a political pundit. But I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure you have a, a, a view on it. You know, I like living, I, I spent a lot of time in, um, you know, I live in, I live in Colorado more in like the middle of the country and, and I, um, I sort of travel relatively extensively. Um, and you know, there is, um, I, I think that there's, there's sort of like feelings of disconnection and feelings of anger, um, that kind of led to him being elected the first time. And I, you know, even though he was in there for four years, I don't think that those kind of entirely went away. And so I think you sort of still have, um, you still have some of that. Uh, I think where it's gotten interesting is that a lot of the sort of attention that was pushed towards him by kind of more, you know, by, 
by Fox or by kind of some of the media outlets, um, they're shifting away from him and it's pushed a lot of uh, kind of conservative, further right folks, um, you know, a little bit more onto the, the fringe and in, in as well, like, you know, not a, not a fan of Fox, but like, mm. you know, if like if, if people do still support Trump, like Fox doesn't really support Trump. So they're kind of like those those people are then moving on to these other things that are then even more extreme and like. Right. Um, and, uh, but also like America is not a place where you have, I think, really honest conversations about class or about, um, like economic inequality. And so some of these different things that are, you know, I think you do have communities that sort of feel very much like kind of left behind. Um, and, uh, you know, up, out here you just, you have, the cities are sort of these like little liberal spaces, but outside of that, like um, it's 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 getting pretty messy. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's for sure. Well, I mean, we could yeah, we could we could go down that that rabbit hole um, uh, sort of endlessly, I think. But um, well, I'll, I'll bring it back to you since you're the guest and people are fundamentally here to. Uh, think about photography, but um, you, you, you've I, I've sort of heard you express um, a certain amount of optimism uh, as far as the state of I think photojournalism in particular goes at the moment. Um, yeah, you know, I think you were making the point that the sort of that things have shifted uh, in some way in terms of uh, the way that I guess you know the sort of the gatekeepers in a way um, the, the the traditional um, sort of commissioning um structure and all that has sort of broken down a bit uh, maybe you could um yeah talk about that a little bit yeah i mean i you know i've i've survived pretty much you know largely off of of um like editorial commissions for the past you know, 10-15 years and um and it's it's been really interesting. I I think that you have yeah you have a lot more a lot more complex voices who are sort of involved um, than I think you know even just in kind of my like short history of it. Um, and you know I I think it's it's also I mean the reality is also in, in my entire career like rates haven't changed <laughs> like yeah. you know like I don't know how anyone like it's it's getting increasingly sort of like difficult I think to to survive financially, but um, I think in terms of the, the conversations that are happening, it's, it's gotten so much more interesting. Um, uh, like where I am in Denver, there's, um, one of my buddies is this, this like really, really like interesting young, um, uh, Chicano photographer, Chicano meaning like, um, yeah, like part of the, like Mexican American, um, uh, named Juan Fuentes and like you know, like Juan is now kind of doing all of these like museum shows here. And his, his, like his work is very much about like, um, like Juan's undocumented. And so, you know, in years past, like, you know, is, is, is in a position where like, wouldn't necessarily be making stuff that would be sort of like shown publicly, but there's, you know, even in terms of like curators and some of those spaces, there's like new stuff kind of coming in where it's, um, 
the way that Juan always refers to it is sort of like kind of like occupying those spaces and having these conversations in places where like you're not supposed to be there. Like these institutions weren't built for you to be there. And so you're sort of like occupying that. And it's it makes it so much. I mean, just as as a consumer (laughs) of like art and and, and images and, and like, I feel like it's like a really it's a much more exciting sort of like time and space um you know i obviously like the the kind of economic models haven't followed that so it's like yeah uh, <laughs> i mean it's, it's funny isn't it because you know i mean uh, it's sort of i think anyone anyone who's been in this world for a while will, will be aware of the fact that people have been you know uh, sort of griping and whining about um, the demise of of this industry and of, of photojournalism for for as long as anyone can remember. Um, certainly, from you know when I started out, um, that it was it was something that everyone was talking about, and of course, no one had predicted what was about to happen. <laughs> but um, yeah, if they'd known, they probably would have think thinking that uh, it was sort of happy days, really. But um, relatively, yeah, speaking, things have um, got worse in terms of you know, uh, the potential to earn a living and stuff. But it's nice to, to hear, you know, a kind of more optimistic take on things in terms of, yeah, what, you know, the, the, the way that some things have shifted in a positive direction. How, how are you feeling about the whole AI business? Everyone must have some sort of um, kind of a position on that. I mean, you're a jobbing, as you said, very much a jobbing editor or photographer. You're sort of a, you know, a dying breed in a way. Uh, you know, in terms of people I've, I've spoken to, um, but it's not, it's nice to be in that group, but yeah, I suppose you're one of the cohort of people who, whose livelihood could be threatened by, by the sort of, um, rise of, of AI. Yeah. I I was talking to a friend who's a, um, photography professor and communication professor who's kind of doing a paper on it, on like AI and photojournalism. And one of the things that we were talking about is like, um, I, I like, I, I guess I just don't <laughs> like, I feel like there's a huge part of photography that could kind of go away and it just sort of would mm. be fine. Yeah. In a way I'm think I'm thinking more in terms of the commercial stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, you know, I think photojournalism is going to become, you know, all the more vital, um, in a sense, you know, and how we're going to recognize, you know, something real from something not real is, is a whole other question. But yeah, sorry, I sort of, uh, I sort of cut you off, Ben. So, you know, carry on. Yeah. Like, I, I guess I, I just, um, uh, you don't think photojournalism is a threat. Is that what you're saying? I mean, I think that photojournalism is it as it is like, to me, like some of the larger threats to photojournalism has been a sort of stodgy, uh, like industry that's sort of struggled to change or keep up with the times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that at least in the time that I've, I've been in it, it's been these sort of existential questions of like Photoshop of like, like yeah. these different things. Um, and, and to me, it's, it's a little bit more like, well, how, how does, what's the, what's the actual visual conversation that society is having? Like, um, how has, uh, like, you know, does, does anyone under the age of like 45 still see the world through a like 35 millimeter reportage Mm. lens? Um, 
and, and I think like, uh, I don't know, to me, like those, like there's some of those things that are, um, uh, <laughs> I was in Blackpool a few years ago, uh, with this like secret society of magicians, um, for, for this magazine story. And one of them, they were like, one of them was sort of like giving advice to this older magician and this magician's like, you know, I've done this, I've done this illusion for like for decades and it's always gotten this great response from people. And like for the last like four or five years, like my audiences like don't respond to it anymore. What's wrong with audiences today? The guy's like, Nothing's wrong with audiences. He's like, you've been doing the same damn trick for like 25 years. Like, yeah, yeah. You're the problem. He's looking at it for the wrong, from the wrong end of the uh, problem. Yeah. 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 And, um, well, I mean, and I mean, yeah, you are, you, I, you, you are that sort of person who, who, who sort of got a little foot in, in, in all sorts of different camps. Like I say, you, you do your, you do the editorial stuff. You, you do do some sort of more commercial type, type gigs. I mean, you are sort of, you know, a, a gun for hire, like in, in the tradition of, of, um, you know, yeah, of, of photographers for a while. And, um, and then yet you still, yeah, find the, the the time and the you sort of well I suppose you make the time um to to do these much more kind of involved and personal projects I mean is that do you struggle with that balance or you find it reasonably doable no I I do I uh um you know especially like I I'm I'm in a little bit of a transition phase of trying to figure out like um uh you know, the, the problem with the, the sort of like, especially the editorial stuff is you just have to do so much of it to, to be able to make a living. Um, and it takes up so much of your time and so much of your, um, and like sort of just creative energy. Uh, um, so I'm trying to figure out like how to lean more into some of the other, what, and also just a lot of it's, a lot of it's pointless. You know what I mean? Like, like, like it's, it's, uh, you know, it's like a magazine's like, Hey, let's give this writer like six weeks to do this really beautiful in-depth piece. And then like, cool, like Ben go fly here and spend like 20 minutes photograph, like photographing a portrait of this person. Mm. Um, and, and so, I, so I'm just trying, I think I'm trying to figure out like, how do you, yeah, like open up and do like figure out other ways of kind of paying the bills that, that don't sap as much of that creative, um, and right. Like yeah. storytelling space in, in, in your, um, in your brain. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely one of the fundamental challenges. And, um, one that I guess a lot of us are faced with, well, good luck with that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll let when, you know when I solve yeah, the equation. When, yeah. For- when you, when you've solved it, um, <laughs> Give me the exclusive <laughs> so that I can put, put that out, uh, that solution out on, on, on a small voice. Um, ben, thank you so much. This has been really great. And um, I hope we've given the listeners some kind of flavor of what The Good Citizen's about. Um, obviously, you know, we're always dealing with the uh, fundamental fact that we're talking about photography on a on an audio medium uh, and uh and therefore people have to to make their own pictures um or 
more simply they can go to your website and uh or, or buy the bloody book you know it's uh <laughs> it's it's available from from gost so um yeah thank you ben and we'll, we'll do the um the bonus questions for the members if that's all right but yeah just um uh, i appreciate you coming and chatting with me about it all yeah thanks for the opportunity mm-hmm.